We join in prayer. Lord, we're celebrating your amazing grace to us in the giving and the gift of your Son. For eyes that have been opened, for stony hearts that now beat for you, uh, for the cleansing of sin that the snowy landscape reminds us of this morning, for your grace that is freeing, has freed us, and frees us to live for you and for others. And we would say to you, apart from your grace, we don't have a chance, we don't have a clue. And we need your grace right now as we continue to worship you by sitting under your word, hearing it with the desire to have your word continually transform us. And so through your spirit, would you prepare our hearts right now for what you have to say and use the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth to bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Happy New Year. It's good to be back. Had a great time away with the family and a good week of study and back at it. And want to let you know that there's an important date this month that you don't want to lose sight of. In two weeks, the 26th and the 27th, we're coming back with a very significant message about the vision, where we've been, where we're going, and the challenge to not just see it and believe it, but embrace it with all of our hearts so that together we can be about changing lives to change the world. So note that. Don't miss that weekend. I don't care if it snows 32 inches. We're not canceling church. Well, I, I, you just check the website. All right, but the point is, it's important. And then that night, we're having a prayer gathering. We're going to start doing quarterly prayer gatherings where we come together, young and old, in this place on a Sunday night. So the 27th at 6 p.m., we want this place packed with all of us and the rest of us, young and old, coming together, our extreme, our high school students are going to lead us in worship and song, and then we're going to spend the majority of the hour together just praying. So think about that, okay? Now, let me give you an update, because here's what I've been excited about. I was excited about our great services over Christmas, the opportunity to share the Christmas message, message with so many people here in our community, many of your friends and family who joined us. And we set out a challenge. Remember that financial challenge, kind of catch up and get to a great place. And 225 was the, the amount, 225,000. And God graciously through you supplied 228,000. Is that great? And so Dr. Heilman, as I like to call him, Craig and I looked at each other and said, man, we should have said the goal was 250. But in addition to the general, there was 40-plus thousand that came in for building and another 10,000-plus for benevolence. Praise God for the generosity that he's welling up in our hearts to give to him into the mission of this place. And I don't know if you heard, but last weekend, 200 of our students were up in Green Bay for a big youth conference. And of the 200 that we sent, about 50 of them, Kyle says, weren't from our church. So they were our students' friends. Talk about walking across the room. And they were up there hearing the good news of God's love for them in Christ. And many came to faith and grew in faith. And we give praise to God. Well, we uh, launched out the last weekend of of December this new series, Christianity Explained. Kind of getting down 
to the basics of the faith. And the basics of our faith really center in on one person, who he is and what he did, Jesus Christ. So week one, he is the son of God who has authority over all things. He has authority over demons so he can cast them out of people. He has authority over creation so he can say to the, to the raging storm, be still, and his authoritative word calms the sea. He is authoritative. He was authoritative as a teacher. He had authority to forgive sins, and he proved his ability to do that by raising up the paralyzed man. He had authority as a son of God to raise people from the dead, and even to say to a person, hey, you, come, follow me. Jesus Christ, the son of God, who has authority over all things, authority over you and me. The perfect Son of God who lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. That was last week, the crucifixion. And today, we focus in on the resurrection. I I mean, this is really, really important. In in fact, this doctrine, if we don't hold to it, will crumble like, like the Jenga game. You ever played the Jenga game? You got that stack of those little wooden pieces and you're, you're trying to get as many of those pieces out before it falls apart. And that last piece is, is kind of like the resurrection. You take it out from the Christian faith and the whole faith collapses. So where are you at with this all-important, key, essential doctrine that Jesus Christ died and then three days later rose from the dead? Do you believe it? Listen to this guy's thoughts about the resurrection. I've been taught the same Bible story time and time again. I've heard it from teachers and preachers more times than I can count. I've seen it on felt boards, on television, even on the big screen. It's not just a story. It's the story, according to Christians. It's the Easter story. And it's what I believe I capitalize the word Easter because it's holy, it's set apart, it's reverent. And the center of the Easter message is this. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. And that, we're told, proves that Jesus is God. On the one hand, the claim is simple. He rose from the dead. On the other hand, the claim is insane. Most of the time, I believe the former. I believe in the simplicity of the Easter story. That Jesus died and rose again and that's it. Done. No more questions. But some of the time, a minority of the time, I confess that I wonder if it really happened at all. The rising from the dead part. Now let me warn you, these are thoughts I've learned not to let out, especially with friends who go to church. But they're more than thoughts. They're honest questions. I mean, anyone can invent a religion, right? And maybe I've just bought into a man-made, man-invented religion. Maybe my upbringing has invented God for me. Raised that way, never really having the courage to step outside of my faith and take an honest look in. I've warned you already, but I want to say it again. I am a Christian. But I'm a Christian with doubts that creep in every now and then. And sometimes, I just need to voice my doubts without worrying about what other people think. 
Maybe my unchurched friends are right. Maybe everyone goes to heaven, and Jesus was simply a great guy with a stolen dead body. I feel like an idiot even suggesting this, but I, we, live 2,000 years after the fact. How much of the story could have been altered during that time? So, I'm admitting it. Most of the time, I'm fine with the resurrection story. But some of the time, I stop editing myself, and I honestly question everything. And I might be alone with these doubts, but I have a feeling that I'm not. So how are you with the resurrection story? Most of the time, fine with it? Filled with doubts? Or so new to the claims of Christ and Christianity, you're still trying to figure it out. Well, our teaching today has something for all of us, whether we are on that journey. And it's good for you to know that not only does God have room for where you are on this whole matter of his son, who he is and what he's done, but there's room in this place. So we're glad that you're here wherever you are on that journey. Here's the bottom line. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he isn't who he said he was. And he didn't do what he said he would do. And he can't deliver on what he said he would do in the future. God's a liar. His word isn't true. And we're a bunch of fools for believing it. Now, don't take my word for those conclusions because it's the very argument that the Apostle Paul makes about the importance of the resurrection and if it's not true. So look up on the screen and let's read together what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The issue here in 1 Corinthians 15 is what happens to a person after they die? Some people were being taught that there is no resurrection. Jesus said, look, if there's no resurrection for us, then it shows that there wasn't a resurrection for Jesus. And if there wasn't a resurrection of Jesus, then what does he say? He says, our preaching is useless. Our faith is no good. It's all a lie. We might as well give in to the life of pleasure and hedonism and eat and drink and be merry because there's nothing after it's over. It's over. So whatever little piece of happiness we can grab here, we might as well go for it. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, the Bible says we are a bunch of fools. Someone would say, well, look, look, even if he didn't rise from the dead, you've got to say, this is an amazing man. 
I mean, read his teachings, his teachings like no other, and the way he lived his life loving other people. You got to say that maybe it makes no difference in the future. Maybe there is no future. Maybe this is all we have, but at least following this man is a good thing in this life. And the Apostle Paul would look us in the face and say, that's a bunch of crock. It's a bunch of crock. You're not following a good man at this point. You're following a lunatic. The resurrection, the central issue to the Christian faith. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're fools. But if he did, then, my friends, there's hope. Anybody here need hope? I see a lot of shaking heads. A lot of shaking heads. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, talks about and describes this fallen world as a world that is twisted. And it doesn't take long in life, does it, to realize things aren't right. And you bump into the things that aren't right, and you can lose hope in the midst of hard things. Do you need hope this morning? Well, our hope comes from the foundation of this teaching, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the hope of this resurrection begins with this fact that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and everybody went, oh my goodness, can you believe what happened? He actually said he was going to do it. He predicted it. So here we are. What is it, the 13th of January? And we're pretty fresh into this new year, full of predictions, right? Have you heard some of them? Just Google 2008 predictions. Here's some of the things you'll find. Here's, a, here's one from a very positive website, you can tell, thend.com. <laughs> the stock market is going to crash, says thend.com. There's going to be a massive data meltdown. I think this guy's been watching too many years at 24. Uh, the new Bible code reveals a year of great earthquakes and a polar shift. Not sure what that is, but I think it's bad. Obviously, there's predictions regarding who's going to be president this year. Threat predictions, and oh, on you go. So I decided to have a little fun with this thing of predictions. So here's my top four predictions for Door Creek Church, right? Prediction number one. Jackie Bremer, our director of worship, will break her arm sometime this year and play through the pain without a cast on. Oh, my goodness, that's not a prediction. She did it last night and is doing it this morning, Jackie B. Prediction number two. You're going to love this. The state record muskie will be caught in our retention pond. <laughs> All right, here's another one. Pastors Glenn and Rockwell will enter and win the WWF Tag Team Wrestling Championship. <laughs> And finally, our beloved Tom Nebel, Dr. Tom, will sell one of his CDs of a sermon delivered here at Door Creek for a million dollars on eBay and give the proceeds to retire the debt on this building. All right, well, where were we? Jesus predicts his resurrection. Look at, just follow it through Mark's gospel here. Now, when we're going through Christianity, explain we're using the gospel of Mark. So here it is in Mark 8. 
he then, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, what? Rise again, okay? Mark 9, 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Then in Mark chapter 10, as they're going along the way, Jesus talks about his impending um, crucifixion, how he'll be mocked and spit at. And look at that very last line. And after three days, he says, he will rise. He will rise. Jesus is crystal clear. John tells us about this time where he talks about destroy the temple. And in three days, I'll, I'll bring it, I'll raise it back up. And that was kind of code language for his resurrection. They didn't get it. And that's why John writes what he was speaking about was the temple of his own body. But time after time, he is just crystal clear, explicit. I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And his teaching doesn't pop out of nowhere. It's rooted in the Old Testament belief that we have a God who will give us resurrection life. And it's rooted in an Old Testament that predicted that the Messiah would indeed rise from the dead. So look at Job chapter 19 as an example of the belief in the resurrection. Probably the oldest book in the Bible, Job, says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. And from the pen of King David, Psalm 16, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. He's talking and pointing forward to Christ. You say, how do you know that? How do you know David's pointing forward to Christ? Because the New Testament tells us that's exactly what's going on here. So Peter, in his sermon in Acts 2, writes about this very quotation. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day, right here in Jerusalem, he says. But he was a prophet, that that is David, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. And so when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul passes on this creed, this early confession of the faith for the church, what does he say? Here's what I received and what I delivered to you that Jesus Christ died, and then he adds this little interesting phrase, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. What is, what is going on here? Paul's saying that the resurrection was predicted in the scriptures just as his sacrificial death, according to the scriptures. There's no doubt the Old Testament believed in the resurrection, even predicted the Messiah's resurrection, and Jesus himself made it clear. And so that's where it begins, this hope of the resurrection. Now, the hope of the resurrection then rises on the facts, four fundamental key facts of the resurrection. Let's go to the resurrection account in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16. Turn your Bibles there, if you will, page 722 you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you. Now, as you're turning to Mark's gospel, it's always good to remember, 
if you're new to the faith or want to help somebody who's having questions about the faith, Mark's gospel is a great starting place. Short, gets right at who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, what he did, the implications for us as we consider being his followers. Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Almost as if they'd forgotten about that. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a right white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The four key facts that surround the resurrection are listed out in that passage I referred to just a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 15. This early creed, this early affirmation of the faith. Read through it with me. Listen along. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here's the first fact, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And four, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here's the first fact. He really died. It's not like, you know, he almost died, but man, was he strong. And in the cool confines of that tomb was revived and pushed out the stone. And the reason there's a resurrection is because he never died. No, resurrection implies death. Jesus really died. And the scriptures are very clear about it. He received 39 lashes. Each of those leather cords wrapped with a bone, a piece of stone, some sharp metal object. They came over his shoulder and as the executioner pulled down on that whip, it just tore open his back. You could see every muscle. You could see the bones. You could see the intestines sticking through. It was a miracle that he survived even that. Weakened as he goes to the cross, he collapses, remember? And then they get Simon of Cyrene to carry. That's how weak he is. Scriptures tell us, and they took him up to the hill, and they nailed his hands and his feet to a cross, and they crucified him. It was on that cross that he breathed his last. What does the Scriptures tell us? That it was the latter part of the day before the Sabbath. So they needed to get these guys dead quick. And what would they do? They would break the leg of the crucified person so that he could no longer push up and get a breath. He would asphyxiate 
quicker die sooner. When they come to Jesus, what happens? They don't break his leg. Why? Because he's dead. Just to make sure you've got the whole point of the sword that's plunged right into his heart. The blood and the water come pouring out. The executioner, this man, the centurion, who've watched hundreds of people die, is asked by Pilate when Joseph of Arimathea comes to say, can I take his body down from the cross and bury him in my tomb? And Pilate says, is he dead already? Joseph says, yes. And Pilate says, let me check it out. So he calls for the centurion, the one who oversaw the crucifixion of Christ. He said, is he dead? And he says unequivocally, yes, he died. He really died. Important fact number two, he was buried. He was buried in Joseph's tomb. Joseph and his friend Nicodemus wrapped him in the linens and the spices. The women were right there across from the opening of the grave watching it all happen. They knew where that grave was. They didn't go to the wrong grave that morning. The religious leaders knew where the grave was. Why? Because on Saturday, they were concerned about one thing. We think the disciples are going to steal the body. So Pilate, let us post a guard. Let us post a guard so they can't come up with any of that shenanigans. Permission granted. They post a guard. They seal off the tomb. The religious leaders knew where the tomb was. Everybody is very clear where that tomb was. All four Gospels record it. He was buried. He was in that tomb for three days, parts of three days, Friday night, all of Saturday, and the early hours of Sunday morning. He was really dead. And then the most amazing fact is that the tomb was empty. The empty tomb. The angel was sitting in this empty tomb, said he's risen just as he said. The the women went in and saw this to be true. They go back and tell the disciples, and the gospel tells us that John outruns Peter to the entrance. He stands there. Peter runs in. They look around, and he's not there. We know they're not the only ones that believe this. The religious leaders themselves who hated Jesus believe this. How do we know that? Because when the guards come back to give the report to the religious leaders, they concoct the story. Tell people that the disciples stole the body. Why did they say that? Because the tomb was empty. If it wasn't empty, all they need to do is say, here's the body, you fools. What are you doing? You're deceived, deranged people. He has not risen from the dead. Here is the tomb. Here's where his body is. We have the body. Stop this nonsense. The tomb was empty. And perhaps most importantly, he was witnessed. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the women, well, they don't mention, Paul does not mention the women. He mentions He mentions Peter, he mentions the 12, he mentions 500 at one time, he mentions James, the apostles, and even himself. And the gospel accounts add to the two women. They're that morning, they add to it the two on the way to to Emmaus that night, Easter night. It's the crux of the apostles' teaching. It's what they're getting in trouble for. In Acts chapter 4, when they say, and they preach the hope of resurrection life through Christ. And Acts 4.33 makes it clear that that's what they were teaching. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. He died. He was buried. He was in that tomb for three days. 
tomb was empty and risen Jesus was seen by over 500 people. Paul says, and the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection are still living today. You can check it out if you don't believe me. What are the implications? The implications are if Christ did rise from the dead, then he is who he said he is, the Son of God. And he did what he said he was going to do, die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. And he can deliver on his promises to forgive us, his promise to, to give us deliverance from death and to give us resurrection life, hope for this life and for the next. The implications are huge. When the Bible starts working out the implications of the resurrection, here are some of the things that the Bible teaches us about this truth. First, Christ's resurrection gives new life and a living hope for today and tomorrow. Peter makes this point. 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth, new spiritual life into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. The implication of Christ's resurrection is that we can have new life, resurrection life, and that we can have a living hope for not only this life, but for the next Here's a second implication. Christ's resurrection declares one righteous. What's going on here is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead tells us that his sacrifice on the cross for our sins was acceptable in the Father's eyes. It it was good. More than good enough. It was the perfect sacrifice. So that we are what the Bible calls justified. This is a legal declaration And you see that word justification. Just think about this phrase. Just as if I'd never sinned. Through faith in Christ who died for us, we can stand before God declared righteous. Not because we no longer sin, but because we have placed our faith in Christ and we've been covered with his perfect righteousness. His righteousness has been credited to our account so that we have a standing before God and can stand before him now and forever because of Christ. Romans 4, Paul puts it this way. Verse 24, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. A third implication Christ's resurrection gives hope for eternal life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. That's why our mourning in the face of a loved one who died in faith, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, is a mourning that is coupled with joy and hope and a deep peace. That even at that point in our great loss, they are more alive than they've ever been, all resting on the resurrection. Now, here's an interesting implication that you may not have thought about. 
But the scriptures are clear here. Christ's resurrection brings justice. Listen to what Peter says to Cornelius as he's kind of doing his own version of Christianity Explain in Cornelius' living room. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country, speaking of Jesus, in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The Bible teaches that when Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended into heaven, he was appointed by God to be judge over all things. And he is the righteous judge who will make all things that were wrong right. He'll bring it all to justice. And we long for that, but we're scared of that because we realize we're part of the problem. I haven't lived a perfectly just life where I've always loved my neighbor as myself. The implication of the resurrection is Jesus is a judge. We will stand before him. And there's one of two ways to go. We'll either stand in our own sins and be condemned, or we will stand being covered by the blood of Christ and be forgiven his sacrifice for us and find eternal life. So to put it kind of in a nutshell, it goes like this. Those who believe in Jesus now are forgiven now and will be accepted by Jesus when judged. Those who reject Jesus now are still guilty now. They're still in their sins and will be rejected by Jesus when judged. Jesus said this in John 8, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. But the beautiful teaching of the resurrection is we don't have to. You don't have to because of Jesus' death and resurrection. He predicted it. The Old Testament pointed to it. The facts are clear. His followers didn't die for a lie. They believed he rose from the dead and this was the greatest news that they'd ever seen and heard in their life. And those who knew this man who died for them and saw him rise from the dead went and told the known world about it and they were willing to die for it. Not for a lie, but for the truth. And the truth of resurrection life has coursed many of our hearts here today to know of his power to give us a living hope, to forgive our sins, to give us a living hope in this world, twisted and fallen as it is in the midst of excruciatingly hard things to have hope, not only for this life, but for the next. It's the message of Christianity, that he died, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose from the dead. He is risen And we serve a God who's alive and active 
It's in him we have life. And it's in him that we have the hope of eternal life. May that move us to worship him and obey him. May that trigger us to go from this place to be the church in the world and to tell others about him. Let us be ready for his soon return. Let's pray. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be with those whose hearts are being stirred by your spirit, that you'd grant them faith to believe what the young man said might be insane, but what we believe to be the clear record of your word. Would you give them the faith to take your word as it is and in believing to receive the gift of life and receiving the gift of life and eternal living hope for this life and the next. Lord, thank you so much that we have so much more than reincarnation to look forward to. Thank you for the resurrection. Comfort those who mourn the loss of loved ones with this hope. We pray in Christ's name, amen.